0: Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on AirTalk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. kpecc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. But we begin today with Dr. Dean Blumberg, UC Davis Children's Hospital, Chief of Pediatric Infectious Disease. Dr. Blumberg, very good Friday morning to you. Hope you have a nice weekend planned.
1: Yeah, good morning to you, Larry, and congratulations on the Rams being in the Super Bowl. They're going to blow out the Bengals, right?
0: Well, we hope so, certainly, and and I'm I'm sorry that the 49ers didn't advance, given your lifelong support of them and, and your father being a season ticket holder, but they sure look like a team on, team on the rise. So um, anyway, we should have some good matchups uh, at least twice next year as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's talk, first of all, about where we stand on COVID-19. I was just reading that 49 out of 50 states are seeing a drop in COVID-19 cases. We, of course, are still seeing uh, death numbers that are high, as that's a lagging indicator. But your thoughts about what we're seeing, because it kind of seems like it's conforming with the modeling that we expected with Omicron.
1: Yeah, it really is following the models. It looks like in California that the number of daily infections peaked on January 1st and now we're at less than 20% of that peak. So that's really come way down and and yeah, the hospitalizations are still higher but they're starting to drop. To now. So we're. I think we're past this Omicron peak.
0: I saw San Francisco is cutting back on some of the masking requirements for fully vaccinated and boosted people. At what point do you think that other places in California will be able to take those public health steps?
1: Yeah, you know, I think we're really getting there. We're really and we're really getting close to being in a post-pandemic um, period because pretty much everybody now is going to have at least partial immunity um, to COVID, either from vaccination or from prior infection, considering how infectious Omicron was. And then the other issue to take into consideration is now that the N95 masks are more widely available. So it then becomes more of an individual choice rather than a public health issue, that if people want to protect themselves, Um, and then they don't have to worry about other people's vaccination status, basically. A new study from the CDC just came out this morning showing that wearing N95s um, in indoor public settings um, decreased um, chances of infection by 83% compared to uh, 56% for cloth masks. So presumably it doesn't protect for 95% because some of those people are getting infected at home. But, you know, that's, a, that's extraordinary protection that people can, can take uh, upon themselves to take responsibility for their own health.
0: Uh, Los Angeles County has announced it would be looking at uh, modifying its mask rules once conditions here improve. Uh, it would have to be about a 20%. 6% drop below the current figure. So uh, hospitalizations for uh, COVID-positive patients would have to drop below 2,500 for seven straight days. Sounds like it might not be too long before that that figure is reached, because we were at nearly 5,000 not long ago.
1: Yeah, exactly. And just to compare the daily infections in L.A. County, they were over 50,000 in early January and now they're 20 times less than that. So they've really gone down um, a, a whole lot. So I, I don't know if it's going to be spring or or if public health officials are going to want to wait until summer, but I think we're going to enter a period where it is, you know, there's going to be a big easing of these mandates.
0: And in L.A. County, the easing would be for outdoor mega events uh, such as uh, stadiums, Hollywood Bowl, uh, those sorts of things, uh, as well as outdoor spaces for kids in school or in Child care settings. And I did want to ask you about this. Uh, you know, you probably heard there are different petitions that are making their way around people calling for uh, the easing or, or doing away with masking requirements for students in school. As a pediatric specialist, your, your thoughts about uh, what is the best policy for, for kids in school at this point?
1: You know, there's robust evidence that masking and screening and keeping people out who are sick—that that's that's definitely the way to make sure that we can ensure that in-person learning remains an option for children. You know, if you don't have those policies, then there's an increased risk of outbreaks, then schools close, and then students are deprived of that experience. So, at the present time, especially since we're still ramping up childhood vaccination efforts, I think it just makes sense to continue with the the mask in schools. Speaking
0: of which, uh, Pfizer uh, applying for its vaccine to be able to be used in kids under five, what do you anticipate for the timeline of that approval?
1: Yeah, I'm not exactly sure. The FDA is going to be meeting and evaluating the data on February 15th, and then the CDC is going to be meeting on the 17th, two days later but I'm not sure what they can really do at this point because the data looks very good for those six months to up to two years of age, but for the two to four year olds, that you know, they're the ones that had the suboptimal immune response to the two childhood doses. That's one-tenth of the adult dose. And they're now needing a third dose um, to see if they can get better protection. And they're not going to have the data um, later on this month when they're evaluating it. So I'm not exactly sure what, what kind of recommendations they can make. I I don't know if I really if we really want to move forward with recommending to start vaccinating with these. Um, kids with the anticipation that the third dose is going to be the answer, or if you really want to get that data first?
0: Well, and and the other thing, to have kids have to get three different shots. Um, that's kind of rough for little ones. What about for um uh, those two to four years of age getting a higher dosage and only having to take two injections?
1: Yeah, you know, if I was in charge of the world, I think that's 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 what I would do, is I would give them the, the dose that the 5 to 11-year-olds are getting, um, that's about a third of the adult dose, um, and see if those two immunizations do result in a better immune response with an acceptable safety profile. Um, I think that would be better rather than giving three doses of the um, of the lower dose vaccine.
0: Wendy emailed us, said many of my friends who tested positive recently only took rapid tests. They didn't take a PCR uh, or reported their positive results. How do we interpret the case numbers now that so many positives go unreported?
1: Yeah, that's a real challenge, um, you know. But that has been occurring for quite some time now, where people have been doing the tests at home, um, and then they're not—they're not reported. So some have been trying to encourage people who get the tests at home to then schedule a PCR test um, so that it is then um, documented and reported to public health. But that's pretty awkward. And I can understand that people who do test positive may not want to go through to the hassle to going to the doctor's office or, or the laboratory to, to get tested. So I think with these case numbers, um, you know, the, the daily case infection rates are going to be less accurate due to that. But certainly, the you know, the hospitalizations, you know, there's a hard number that you can hang your hat on. Um, so that's something that we can continue to follow in terms of following these surges.
0: Yesterday, we had a question arrive a bit late uh, from Susan in Seal Beach. So we weren't able to ask it, but she emailed to ask, is it considered a breakthrough case uh, if I've been fully vaxxed and boosted and gets co- get COVID? Is it the same whether you're twice vaxxed or vaxxed and boosted and you get COVID? Is it all considered breakthrough?
1: Yeah, all of those are considered breakthrough cases. The issue is that if you're fully vaccinated, eligible for booster, and you're not boosted, then your chances, your risk of a breakthrough case are higher compared to if you are boosted. But yeah, those would be considered breakthrough cases.
0: Don in Playa del Rey says, now that we're starting to round the corner with Omicron, I wonder if there have been studies by health providers, insurance companies, or universities looking at the differential in cost of treatment between those hospitalized with COVID because they were unvaccinated and those who were vaccinated.
1: Yeah, I'm not aware of any any economic data or other data like that, but certainly those who are um, unvaccinated are at much higher risk of hospitalization, um, of breakthrough cases and hospitalization. Um, we know that there's a at the current time there's unvaccinated adults have four times increased risk of testing positive, and 15 times increased risk of dying from COVID. So so that that risk is there. That's an object. Those are object objective numbers. Collected by the CDC,
0: and do hospitals collect those statistics about which patients with COVID have been vaccinated and which not? Is is that something that's tabulated?
1: You know, the hospitals don't have to. I mean, individuals can ask that question, but it really needs to be done in a you know, like the CDC does by tabulating the numbers and and looking at at, at vaccination status and data, databases and others. You know, I can tell you my personal practice when if i see a kid in the hospital with a covid or covid complication i don't always ask their vaccination status it's interesting for for me but you know sometimes it's a little bit awkward because you don't you don't want to ask it in a way that sometimes the parent could feel blamed or guilty like they should have vaccinated their child. So you you have to be sensitive to that.
0: Yeah, because they're already, of course, uh, deeply concerned about their child. So Mm -hmm. I understand why that that would be very sensitive uh, in some cases to ask that question. Joy in Hancock Park says, is it true that as the virus evolves, it becomes less dangerous? I've heard that's how viruses work generally. And uh, I'm wondering if that's true. That's Joy in Hancock Park.
1: You know, that's not always true. That can be true, and it does provide a survival advantage for the virus because if it's less dangerous, if less people are dying, then the host, the person who's infected, is living, and then it gives them the ability to transmit more to others. So it's actually a survival advantage if it doesn't kill um, the person that it's infecting. But that doesn't always happen. I mean, look what happens, for example, with influenza. We get some strains that are much, much more serious, cause much more serious infection than others and others that cause milder infection. And with um, Ebola, for example, you know, it, it, it's just as deadly, even though some of those mutations made it more transmissible in West Africa.
0: Alex in Arcadia says, I know kids 5 to 11 are getting smaller doses of the vaccine, so I'm wondering for Pfizer's vaccine for kids under 5, what is the planned dosage? Did you say it was one-tenth of the adult dose?
1: Yeah, so for the 5 to 11-year-olds, it's one-third of the adult dose. One-third, 5 to 11. Yeah, and then for the less than 5-year-olds from 6 months to 4 years of age, the ones that are being studied, that's one-tenth the adult dose.
0: All right. Uh, Joseph in Pasadena, my 12 year old son tested positive for COVID a few weeks ago. Even though we tried masking at home, my wife and I both caught it. Now my son is negative back in school, but my wife and I still test positive. At what point can we stop isolating and masking at home amongst ourselves?
1: Yeah, you know, that's not uncommon. You know, you can try to mask at home, but you're in very close contact. And so it's very difficult to really do effective isolation at home. So I'm sorry that those infections occurred. The PCR tests can remain positive for weeks to months after infection. The antigen tests, the rapid antigen tests, Generally, those are negative by 10 to 14 days afterwards for most people, as long as they're clinically recovering and they're they're immune competent.
0: Nancy and Cerrito said, my father-in-law just passed away last week, oh, so sorry, Nancy, from what we thought was Parkinson's-related pneumonia, but because he tested positive for COVID the week before he went into the hospital, his death was marked as COVID-related, so Nancy says we're a little skeptical about the reliability of these death figures.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry for your loss also, and I I don't know what to say about that. You know, I've seen cases too that have COVID and other things going on, and it's really can sometimes be unclear whether it was the COVID that resulted in that complication or death or whether there was some other issue going on. So, for example, we see patients who have COVID and then they do have a bacterial infection also. So, did the COVID weaken their immune system, so it made them more prone to a secondary bacterial infection, or was the COVID just a bystander, and it was the bacteria that that actually was the main problem? And that can be very difficult to sort out sometimes.
0: Yeah, I mean that's that's what happened with my wife's uh, first cousin who who died uh, of COVID-related. It, it was the infection, but she was in the hospital for. Um, gosh, a couple months at least, and um, on a ventilator with COVID and then but it was actually the infection that she got in the hospital that led to her death. So I, mean, I would still call that COVID related because she was she was so depleted by the COVID that she couldn't fight off the infection and she wouldn't even been in the hospital if not for the COVID.
1: Right. So sometimes it's the COVID that initiates the, this cascade of events. So. I'm not sure if the COVID was a bystander, or if the Parkinsons caused something like increased predisposition for an aspiration pneumonia, for example, or maybe the COVID caused weakness that then caused an aspiration event, or just that the Parkinsons do have increased risk of um, pneumonia and complications from pneumonia.
0: It is is it maybe a better figure to look at the effect of COVID on mortality by looking at excess mortalities? Look at the difference during these pandemic years than what we saw prior to it? Does that maybe give a better uh, snapshot of it?
1: Yeah, and those studies have been done that look at overall mortality um, over time and compare year to year. You can objectively see compare the actual numbers that are being reported versus just overall mortality and get the excess. And they they match up pretty good. They're not exactly the same, but they match up very well. Connie
0: in Los Feliz, please ask about those hikes in Griffith Park. Good to have you with us.
2: Hi. My question is... um, I have a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old, and we've been very careful these whole two years around COVID. um, We are very uh, isolated, and uh, they're homeschooled. We don't go anywhere, do anything, see anybody. The only thing we do is we go hiking in Griffith Park in the daytime when there are fewer people around. Lately, I've been wondering if it's safe for us to continue to do it unmasked, given that Omicron is so much more transmissible than Delta.
1: Yeah, you know, I do most of my outdoor activities unmasked. I go running um, in Sacramento along the bike trail, along the river unmasked. And that's because the trail is relatively wide. So I can take a wide berth around people. A lot of those trails in Griffith Park are pretty wide, also. And when you're outside, you know, the air volume is so large, it really dilutes the virus. So I can't say that the risk of transmission is zero, but it's really, really low. And especially if you don't have prolonged contact with people at a, at a close distance, less than six feet. So even if you're on a narrow trail and you walk by somebody um, without lingering, I think the risk of transmission is is very low. I think that's a very safe activity to do without masks.
0: And Connie, I I know you're trying to keep your kids safe, but I was feeling a little sad as you were describing how it sounded like they were isolated. And maybe you were just talking about in terms of COVID, not not isolated in terms of their experience. But are th- are they still able to get out in the world and and and, you know, go places and do things?
2: No, (laughs) we don't go. Literally, we don't go anywhere. I mean, we go for walks around the block. We go for walks in the park. (laughs) We uh, have a uh, we go to the L.A. Zoo because they check vaccination status. So we do things like that. Um, We go out at night when there aren't people out, things like that. Um, But no, we've not been
0: social at all, or gone to a museum, an indoor museum, in two years, or any of that. And and do you have anyone in the house who is immunocompromised or at particular risk? Is 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 that why you're you're um, going to these measures?
2: Well, it's just I'm fifty and my husband's sixty, and uh, you know, and we're it for our two young children. So it's just we just feel like we can't afford to take that risk.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Connie, thank you so much. Really appreciate you sharing and nice to know you can safely be unmasked, uh, on those wider trails at Griffith park. Um, Dr. Blumberg, your thoughts on, on what Connie's done, trying to keep her family safe.
1: Yeah, there's so much that's unknown, you know, that, and, and really, you know, she's, Trying to be there for her kids, she wants to be there for her kids. So it's like every parent wants to do. So um, I think it's you know, a lot of the actions that she's taking are very, very safe. All the outdoor activities are extremely safe, um, you know. And then um, if the kids are comfortable wearing masks, you know, then then and old enough and comfortable wearing masks, then you know that'll open up some indoor activities too. Um, it's great to go to those outdoor activities like the zoo when they're, when people are being screened. That'll decrease the risk of transmission also.
0: All right. I also like that that path along the Sacramento River. I Almost every time I go to the zoo, I make sure to get out on that path. You, you're very fortunate to have that as a place you can run, Dr. Blumberg.
1: Yeah, I, I think so.
0: Yeah, it's very pretty. 866-893-KPECC. Aaron in Westlake Village. Good to have you with us.
2: Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I am the mother of two little kids who are two and four, um, and my four-year-old actually turns five in May. So my question is regarding this sort of unusual thing that Pfizer is asking for, where children in that age bracket might be given their initial two shots, and then hopefully they would get approved for a third. Um, Doctor, my question is for my four-year-old who's almost five. Would you recommend Starting that protocol for him if it's approved, or should we wait until May when we know that the data really backs up his immunoresponse response um, with those two slightly larger doses?
1: Yeah, you know, I think that depends on the situation, on what's going on. So if if this was in the middle of the Omicron outbreak and cases were still rising, I'd say just get the vaccine doses in whatever is appropriate, whatever is available, ASAP to get protected. On the other hand, if by the time the vaccine is approved for use in the less than five-year-olds, if, it's, if that's in March or April, and there's very little activity um, going around, then you might just want to wait until May and then you decrease the number of doses that they have to give. So I, I would just assess the risk at that time.
0: Harvard researchers looking at the Omicron variant uh, have concluded that the milder outcomes from Omicron infections are are likely due to more population immunity compared to, say, Delta, that as as opposed to the strain itself uh, creating milder symptoms than Delta. Dr. Blumberg, what what do you think of that conclusion?
1: Well, that's the whole hope is that if everybody has at least partial immunity, that even when these new variants arise, hopefully, they're going to result in milder infection because of the partial immunity. So it'll it'll just be a cold. Um, And that people won't have to end up in the hospital or die from it. So that's the idea. But it can be very difficult to sort out because the, you know, the, the, the landscape changes over time as these variants develop, so that there's less naive people to infect people who aren't vaccinated, and who've never had COVID. So the studies from Omicron out of South Africa, they had a suggestion that it was milder, even among naive people who had never been infected or vaccinated, that they still, the suggestion was that it was a a milder disease compared to previous surges, you know, but it it can be very difficult to sort out.
0: Yeah. 866-893-KPECC. we question we get from listeners A lot is uh, how much uh, weight should we put on vaccine manufacturers coming up with Omicron specific uh, or, or, you know, future variant specific vaccines or the fact that Omicron is is leaving about as quickly as it came make the need for that uh, minimal.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. They're already studying, they're prepared. So they're studying Omicron-specific vaccines right now. So those those studies are ongoing. But that's a question that we have is, do we need strain-specific vaccines going forward? Or do you get enough protection, at least partial protection against severe disease with the original strain? Um, So I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if this is going to be like influenza vaccines that every year there's a a new vaccine that keeps up with circulating variants, or if that's even needed or not. Because remember, the primary goal of vaccination is not to prevent mild breakthrough infections. The primary goal is to keep people out of the hospital, stop severe infections, keep people alive and decrease risk of death. And so far, the vaccines with the original strain, they're, they're doing their job.
0: All right. Dr. Dean Blumberg, UC Davis Children's Hospital, joining us on AirTalk. I've only seen this story on conservative media outlets. I haven't seen it picked up other places, but it's about a Johns Hopkins meta-analysis of studies looking at the effectiveness of lockdowns during the first wave of COVID-19 in the spring of 2020. And the findings of the meta-study found that the mortality rate was reduced in places that locked down by 0.2 percent in the U.S. and Europe. The researchers wrote, while this meta-analysis concludes lockdowns have had little to no public health effects, they have imposed enormous economic and social costs where they've been adopted. In consequence, lockdown policies are ill-founded and should be rejected as a pandemic policy instrument. The researchers are Johns Hopkins economics professor Steve Hanke, Lund University economics professor Lars Jonung and special advisor at Copenhagen Center for Political Studies Jonas Herbie. Um, this has not been peer reviewed, but, you know, I think there are going to be a lot of these kinds of studies coming out to determine what were the best public health measures to take against surges of COVID-19. Your thoughts about the nature of those studies and what, if anything, we can take from this one?
1: You know, there are there are other meta-analyses that have done the same that take a look at a bunch of different studies and try to sort out, um, try to standardize them in a way to sort out what the effect of these lockdowns are, because, of course, every lockdown is different. They, t- they take into account different things in terms of physical distancing, in terms of um, uh, closing businesses, whether they're na- nationwide or localized school closures business closures, so there's a whole variety of way you can do that. You know, I'm looking at another one from um, investigators from Australia, Edinburgh, um, China, and other institutions that are primarily medical people, and they found a 25% decrease in the number of cases with the lockdown. So, you know, I, I, you know, you wonder if the assumptions that these people with an economic background who might be more invested in more economic activity, you know, might be a little bit biased in that way. So we know it just makes sense that they have some effect. Um, whether the effect is 0.2 percent, that seems awfully low to me. Whether it's 25 percent, I'm not exactly sure where it is, but they've got to have some effect. There's a there's there's some robust literature, and most most of the studies show closer to to 25 percent um, decrease in number of cases.
0: Olivia In Venice says in Israel they're allowing some people to get uh, fourth shots. What would be, I guess. She's saying fourth boosters, but I, I think it's second boosters. She says, "I know the CDC isn't recommending a fourth shot yet, but it's been five or six months since I got my last shot. Should I consider getting another one?
1: Yeah, and the early data from Israel doesn't show that that fourth shot in general has much effect. so i'm not i'm not I'm not sure that that really helps that much. So I wouldn't get that fourth dose yet. I think the terminology is also pretty confusing with the booster. And I'll, you know, I think in a few years, we'll come around to the idea that probably three doses are the primary vaccination schedule, that getting the first two doses with a relatively short interval, maybe even a longer interval than three or four weeks, and then a, a third dose maybe six months later, that that'll be considered a primary vaccination. And then getting another shot every year or two or five, I'm not sure what that interval, those are going to be the booster doses. So I think that terminology is going to change too. but. I don't see any need for a fourth dose for most people right now.
0: Stephen Fraser Park emailed us, I have a friend who wants to get vaccinated but is worried about getting a shot at a chain drugstore uh, because of the competency of the technicians who give them there. Steve asks, are such technicians qualified to properly inject the shot?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I guess I'd be nervous if it was like the first time they were doing that. But if you go somewhere that's doing high volume, then presumably that people have a lot of experience um, with that. So, uh, you know, that most people do have experience, it's not that hard to do. I've, I've done it, doing things like intravenously is much more challenging, like starting an IV is more challenging than giving an intramuscular shot. So it's, it, it's not it's not that that challenging. I I, I would trust any kind of high volume um, venue.
0: All right, uh, let's see. We have John in Fullerton who emailed us. I have a relative who had a poor vaccine response due to immunosuppression, got COVID, and received monoclonal antibodies as treatment. How much immunity does my relative have, and for how long?
1: Yeah, you know, the monoclonal antibodies generally last for about three months for most of them. But it does depend when they got them because with Omicron there's only one of the monoclonal antibodies that's effective, the Sotrovimab. The other ones are, are not as uh, effective and so they're not even being used any anymore. So, if it was long enough ago that they got one of those alternatives, then they basically have no immunity to the Omicron variant.
0: Jonathan in Irvine emailed to ask, do you recommend children two to four years old wear N95 or KN95 masks versus cloth masks?
1: You know, in general, I recommend either the cloth masks or the the standard surgical masks. They tolerate those. The N95s may be more difficult for them to breathe through. You know, it it does depend on the child, and they do come in different sizes. So if your child is comfortable in an N95, you can always try that. Um, at the younger ages, but I I think it's easier to use the, the surgical or the cloth masks at that age.
0: Eric in Redlands emailed us, if an unvaccinated person with COVID is quarantined for 10 days but remains symptomatic, is it safe to be around that person or are they still contagious?
1: They're considered not contagious as long as their symptoms are improving and they don't have a fever without taking any fever-reducing medication. The symptoms from COVID may linger for for weeks. So if they have a lingering cough, for example, but it's improving, even after 10 days, they're, if they have a, a, a normal immune system, if they're not immunocompromised, then they're, they're not contagious.
0: And Jenny in Redlands emailed us, wonderful to see so many Inland Empire residents uh contacting us today. My son originally got the J&J vaccine, then a Pfizer booster. He's 19 years old. I feel like he's less protected than those of us who got mRNA vaccines plus mRNA booster. Is there any talk of suggesting another shot for those who got the J&J as a first dose?
1: Yeah, there is. The CDC and and the FDA are continuing to look at that situation for those who received the J&J vaccine for the first dose. There is no recommendation um, now for additional mRNA vaccine doses for those people, but they're continuing to evaluate those people to see if they do have waning immunity and would benefit from another dose.
0: Dr. Blumberg, it's such a pleasure to talk with you every week. We appreciate you very much and wish you a great weekend.
1: Thanks. Same to you, Larry. Thanks for getting the word out and have a great weekend.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in LA. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at las.com, at kpecc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle.